Hello, this is Ken Coates, a Senior Fellow with McDonnell Lurie Institute, and welcome to uh, Podblast Canada. Podblast Canada is McDonnell Lurie Institute's uh, premier uh, podcasting system. We bring introduce people to some of the most important developments in public policy and economic social policy going across the country. And we're absolutely delighted to be joined here today by uh, Julianne Riston from Creative Fire, uh, an Indigenous-owned organization based in uh, based in Saskatoon. Uh, Julianne, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're absolutely delighted. We're going to just get to you some background from you about yourself and about uh, Creative Fire. And then I'd like to have a little talk with you about sort of the challenges and opportunities facing Indigenous business in Canada. Um, as you may know, the McDonnell-Lurie Institute has a large project ongoing now in our fifth or sixth year, um, looking at the whole question of Indigenous involvement in the national economy. And I keep describing it as one of Canada's great unknown success stories. So just give us a bit of background. Who, who's Julianne? Sure. Um, Well, I'm a Métis woman from Saskatchewan. I was actually born and raised in Lloydminster on the Alberta side, but don't judge me for that. (laughs) My journey started, actually, uh, as an Indigenous woman, my journey started at the age of 15. So I was part of the families that were involved in the resistance battle at Batoche. And as a result from that and from Canada's history, my family actually hid our Indigenous roots for many, many decades. So learning of my Indigenous roots at the young age of 15 um, sparked a a real interest in me in trying to understand how that should shape my experience in in Saskatchewan and in Canada, and also just personally for myself and and what my family um, was responsible for, for the fabric of the country. I made it my business to learn a lot of the true story um, of the relationship between Canada and the Métis people and Indigenous people. Um, So that was enlightening to me. And it set a path and a tone for my life and for my education and career um, that was heavily linked to the economic at the time, I didn't know the term, but economic reconciliation for Indigenous people in our country. So that's great. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in the process by which you educated yourself. How much of this was sort of you know, your personal reading, talking to community leaders and elders, political involvement? How do you go about sort of overcoming what was clearly a very long sort of family and, and history of pushing your own heritage to the background? Well, certainly it was um, becoming enlightened on the the relevant authors of the time, Maria Campbell being one, um, reading books like um, Clearing the Plains and Prisoner of Grass and Prairie Fire, um, really looking at actual historical accounts of what happened in Canada. And that that had to be self-led. So it was a lot of research on my own. And this was, if you can imagine, before the great internet took over. Um, So it was, you know, speaking to elders, um, speaking to family members who weren't too concerned about the history being negative. And, and again, that was hard. My, my family did take quite a stand on, you know, this is not something that we are comfortable speaking about. So I really was on my own um, for a lot of this. And then, you know, as the, as the World Wide Web came into play, it became easier for me to connect with people, to find family members who, in fact, did document our history. Uh, and that's when I was really able to uncover, you know, a lot more of, of my own personal history, as well as, you know, Saskatchewan's history in Canada's. To sort of reconnect with your Indigenous roots is, is a fabulous story, and, and I, I appreciate you sharing it with us. Connecting with business is a very different sort of piece. So do, if you mind, tell us a bit about how you became involved in, in the business community. Sure. I, I, um, 
I have an entrepreneurial family. So we've been in business. I've worked for my mother. I owned my first business at the age of 18. Uh, it was an ice cream building in a municipal park in Lloydminster. And that helped me put myself through my first run of university, which was in psychology. I did learn through that three years that business really was more where I was comfortable and what my focus was and ended up going back to obtain a business administration uh, education through SIAST at the time. My first job out of SIAST was actually through the Métis Nation Saskatchewan. I had a couple of other jobs before that, but my first real job was with the Métis Nation Saskatchewan back in 2007. Um, and if you recall that there was a shift politically uh, at that time. And so I was exposed uh, heavily to the political landscape for the Métis people in Saskatchewan and in Canada uh, and learned over that nearly four years that one of our biggest uh, barriers was lack of access to funding, that often our funding was tied to uh, government initiatives. And those initiatives didn't always align with what the communities at the grassroots needed or were saying they needed. So it was really apparent to me through that experience that the best way for our communities to thrive and have a um, healthy lifestyle and healthy outcome was to have our own wealth. It just so happened that in 2009, Westcap Management created the Bridge Program, which was the Business Ready Investment Development Gateway. It's a mouthful. And the premise behind that program was really quite fascinating. A uh, private sector venture capital company here in Saskatchewan saw the need to build stable economic entities to engage in energy and resource deals here in Saskatchewan that could use venture capital dollars to leverage some of those deals. Um, what they found over a couple of years was it was difficult to do those businesses um, because often they were run by political leadership. And so if you can imagine with two-year election terms or even four-year election terms, often some of the business deals would only go so far before being kind of left because of a leadership change or a change in the political will of a community. Uh, so the bridge program was set up to create legal entities, elect uh, good diverse boards that had skills, um, a skills-based board, hire dedicated business management and create strategic plans for those companies. So it was really a serendipitous in a way that I had, you know, kind of made that connection in my mind between uh, wealth creation and um, quality of life. And then this program came about and I was very fortunate to be involved in that. So what was your role within uh, the different organizations? What, what were you doing? Were you writing grant proposals? Were you writing business plans? Were you actually the entrepreneur yourself? What was, what was your function? Uh, my function with the bridge program was we were a two, two person team. Oh. <laughs> so uh, we had, we worked with 17 communities over four years. And my role was program development, um, government reporting. I was often what you would call almost an interim CEO while they searched for and found their CEO. I provided governance development, strategic planning services, you name it. And, and everything I did was at the grassroots level, often physically in the communities with the community leadership um, so I learned an awful lot about what was happening economically for First Nations and Métis communities in Saskatchewan. So you have a very interesting career for a very young person. I'm really, really impressed. So um, you started off by saying that wealth creation would create independence, would create autonomy, would would basically give um, 
more freedom from government, essentially, and the political process. Um, you've been at it for a while. Did it work? Yeah, you know, we're really fortunate. We aligned our, our bridge program after the Harvard Institute of Native Nations theory that the separation of business and politics was what separated uh, successful communities from not successful communities. So we certainly didn't come at this uh, without some research and instinct behind it. It was a 25-year study done by Harvard University. So we applied that model. And part of that was, you know, holding true to the core values of of each individual community that we worked with and um, lacing those core values into their um, business desires and, and the kind of rules of engagement on how to do business with the communities. Um, the separation of business and politics we felt was extremely important. And an interesting note in Saskatchewan is that where other communities and other areas um, really looked at a complete separation between the community and business, uh, here in Saskatchewan, we had a hybrid. So often there would be the desire from the community to have political representation uh, on their corporate boards, but they're there based on skill uh, and they're there to provide that link back to core value and also to provide accountability back to the community. And, you know, it's a pleasure to be able to say that all 17 of those development corporations are still in operation in one form or another today. So the bridge program had tremendous impact on the local economy here in Saskatchewan, bringing First Nations and Métis business from a handful of going concern development corps to um, upwards of 20. Um, so I'm really, really happy about that and really proud of those communities. You should be. So, so I'm proud of yourself, if you don't mind me saying. Um, among those 17, can you can you give me a, a success story? Tell me, uh, and, and I think a lot of our, our listeners would often come into this kind of consultation uh, or this conversation thinking sort of very stereotypic thoughts about Indigenous business. You know, they rely on government subsidies, they rely on government support, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, they don't really move along in their own way. They're not very entrepreneurial. And I know that's simply not true. And in fact, the Indigenous business is growing faster than almost any other part of the Canadian economy. So can you give me a, a, a case or example or two? Absolutely. Of course, I did go on from my position with the Bridge Program to become the CEO for Pine House Business North, um, which was a tremendous um, opportunity and experience for me. Uh, if you can imagine, I was 35 years old and responsible for a multi-million dollar mining services company in northern Saskatchewan. And you know, their story alone is is one that I think everyone needs to know. They started out um, as an impact community in the uranium sector in remote northern Saskatchewan. Um, they had on and off again style relationship uh, with Cameco, but they weren't they were not going to sit back and and allow an opportunity to pass them by. And and they really did build their own future. You know, they drove guys up to the mine sites in a truck with brooms and paintbrushes and tools and said, put us to work. And they did this relentlessly until finally, you know, they were able to secure a couple of contracts here and there. And you think about that growing to a company today where their revenues are upwards of $12 million. That's, that's a phenomenal story. Uh, they entered the bridge program at a time when they very humbly accepted that they didn't understand the structure they needed to grow. And so they had taken the company as far as they could, but knew that in order to be ready for any kind of growth, they needed corporate structure, governance structure, uh, safety policies, HR policies, and they just did not have that kind of, of bench power or bench strength at that time. Um, so 
you know, I was fortunate to come on uh, from the bridge program and enter uh, into their community and their company and help them build those structures and those processes over the course of three years. And and they're still, you know, very growing, going strong community. They've adapted many of the processes from governance and structure to many of their other agencies um, within the community. Um, so you see their housing corporation, um, some of their social programs, they're all emulating the structure and process of, of good governance and good business and best practice. And as a result, they're creating a local economy. Uh, so it's something that I would hope will be case studied <laughs> uh, into the future because it is a tremendous story of success, for sure. I am biased. <laughs> you, you deserve the right to sort of brag. I, I like that very, very much on behalf of the community. Um, if you don't mind me saying as well, one of the things that you didn't say very much about is that is that Pine House was a hurting community before this started. They were a community that was really suffering from marginalization and pretty endemic poverty and some other social challenges. It seems to me that the Development Corp has been a huge part of that transformation toward community health. Absolutely. And, you know, make no mistake, the dedication of their leadership and their just do it attitude. And, you know, you've got to hand it to them, you know, they just would not accept their current status as as appropriate for the future for their children and their their entire lives, their passion. They eat, breathe, and sleep, you know, changing their economic outcome and the outcome for the future for their kids. So, you know, for me, that was that was a ten year learning curve in three. And so take the fact that I was a young woman leading an organization in the mining sector in Saskatchewan out of the equation, because <laughs> that was a learning curve in and of itself. The, the passion and drive and spirit that I learned from uh, in that community will stay with me always. Yeah, I can imagine. I can sort of actually hear it in your voice as you as you as you go through it. Let me let me just ask a, because I was going to ask this a bit later on, but you raised this question of being an indigenous woman working in the, in this case the mining sector, but also in a business community at large. Indigenous women are really creeping up in terms of impact, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's um, it's wonderful to see. And and I'm, I'm a, I apologize. I don't know the exact statistics, but in terms of post secondary graduate rates, uh, Indigenous women are coming full force. And, uh, you know, you, you go back again into core values of community and, and what you see are, you know, women are keepers of culture. Um, they're the ones that raise the children to understand their language and to know where they come from. So if you can take some of those character traits and build them into business development and agency development, that spirit will, will carry the day. Again, I've been very fortunate to, to know and work with a number of female leaders who've mentored me over the years. And I tell you, the, the grace by which they own their space is something not to be trifled with. And I can only hope to have half of that <laughs> as, as I continue into my career. It was a hard uh, transition for myself. And, you know, if I'm able to, if I could take any liberty to give any advice to any young women out there, what I would say is this, don't allow yourself to change your characteristics based on your environment. Uh, you know who you are and you know the strengths that you bring. So use that voice. And that was that was my challenge. And uh, there were times when I forgot that. So, you know, that's what I would say to young women out there who are getting into leadership positions. 
So are you finding it easier to get uh, more women into young women into the into the business world? Yeah, you know, this this upcoming generation um, is knocking my socks off. So, uh, you know, for me, I feel a tremendous responsibility to pave the way to open those doors and make those roads wider for these young women to come and, and take control. Um, boy, they have some fantastic ideas and some huge drives. So, you know, as we evolve as a society, when we talk about uh, diversity and inclusion and reconciliation, you know, it, it is it is getting better. There's still a long ways to go uh, uh, from my perspective, but there's some very, very good, strong characters and women out there that have paved a, a, a path. And I think that these young women coming up the ranks are going to be incredible leaders. So if you could fix one thing, I'll make it two things and give you a bit more room for your ambition and your, and your, and your insight. If you could fix two things in terms of indigenous business in Canada, that would allow those young women and young men to sort of capitalize on opportunities. What would they be? What's, what's missing right now or what's, what's in short supply? Yeah, I think that policy driven procurement opportunities in, in major industry in Canada, you know, they need to be redeveloped and redesigned. You know, we've talked for so many years about capacity building at the community level, at the Indigenous business level. And I guess coming from Saskatchewan, my perspective is we need to move beyond capacity building and start recognizing competencies and allowing space for these communities to engage in procurement in, at equal footing. So, you know, often what we see in the procurement space is there's the major capital spends um, for industry and the, the big boys and the big players are in there submitting their proposals for work. And then there's the carve out for the indigenous business community. And often it's, it's nominal. Uh, and then you have some really quite relevant business uh, entities all vying for the same dollars. And so it's just not, it's not what the free economy should look like. Uh, and if you, you know, if you believe that the economy kind of maintains itself, I believe that it's time for us to open that economy up to Indigenous business. I believe Indigenous businesses are ready. Um, and in often cases, they're actually better structured for the future. So that's one thing I would change absolutely with question. Uh, the second thing is the reality in capital gap. So, you know, when we look at getting involved in, in large-scale uh, energy and resource projects, you know, the access to capital is, is a barrier for any um, business. What we have uh, in Canada are trust funds for First Nations and Métis communities, more so First Nations, for uh, treaty land entitlement and, and other, other such things that could be used really to support, promote, and leverage real business decision-making uh, and being able to be partners at an equal footing there. So, you know, this becomes then government policy. How can communities access the money that they actually have in trust for them to determine their future going forward. So, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, certainly. Yeah, but what a great prescription for the future. Right now, you probably know this, there's a very serious conversation going on in Ottawa 
about the idea of establishing a 5% minimum uh, threshold for all government departments in terms of procurement from Indigenous business. And if that were to happen, it would be more than a $2 billion a year infusion into uh, Indigenous organizations from coast to coast to coast. And you know, the interesting point about that, that's not a gift. You have, to, you have to earn it. You have to compete for it. You have to sort of have the right price, right quality, right delivery times, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's also something that should have been done all along. And what a great foundation for growth. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what I can say about um, businesses here in Saskatchewan, you know, we've been through a business renaissance, you know, we've had some real shift in in our leadership and our thinking, and in our structure. And so we're ready. So (laughs) I would say to Canada, uh, government and industry, bring it because we are absolutely ready to take it. I I expect you are. Um, tell me about Creative Fire. You, how long have you been with Creative Fire? And what's your role there? So I'm a senior strategist with Creative Fire. I've been here nearly a year. It's a wonderful company. Um, the The story behind Creative Fire is uh, about three years ago. They actually put. They started to talk the walk or walk the talk, I guess, is a better way to put it. Um, And they were um, 51% acquired by Desnete Developments, um, which is owned by English River First Nation, which is uh, actually a uh, neighbor to Pine House up in northern Saskatchewan. So in doing so, you know, what they did is they recognized an opportunity in a market um, that really requires uh, support from a communications and marketing point of view. And that's what Creative Fire does uh, is marketing and communications. And they didn't just joint venture. They didn't just create side arm that maybe might have something to do with the indigenous business sector. They went all in and gave up 51% ownership of their company. So, you know, if you want to see what it means when you really, really put your yourself out there, that's what uh, the partners at Creative Fire did. I've been here for, like I say, a little bit more than a year. Uh, and my role here is to help do the things that they would do in this in this sector. So working with Indigenous communities on consultation and strategic planning, working with non-Indigenous companies to build uh, strategic plans for diversity and inclusion, helping change language and communication and marketing um, so that it appeals to the Indigenous marketplace. Um, so they're really building themselves competitive advantage that no one else really in the industry has right now. And it's an exciting time for sure. It really, it really is. I've been a huge fan of Creative Fire and of, of Sean Willie um, for, for quite some time. If you were to look at Creative Fire five to 10 years from now, what would it look like? Well, if we keep the same pace, you know, I would see this company heavily staffed with Indigenous talent, and that's happening right now. I would see, you know, absolute parity, if not shifting into a a majority Indigenous client base. I think that you know, they're looking at the national scene as their as their playground. So, you know, the sky's the limit for this company. And, you know, anybody who can help advance the the relationship business wise um, between Canada and Indigenous people to me is is on the right track. That is what the future looks like to me. And so I think they're well positioned to to be a, a really heavy hitter in this marketplace. So tell me why if you if you can you must think about this a lot. I, I think that the growth of Indigenous business has become the front lines of reconciliation. It's where Indigenous and non-Indigenous people are doing what Creative Fire is doing, which is figuring out how to work together and turning the strengths of both into strengths for, for each other. Um, why does the country not know more about this? 
Oh man, that's, you know, it's, it's a good question. And I think that it's starting to come out, you know, organizations like the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, it's, it's becoming a story that's being told, but I think that it's so new and has been so new. And so, you know, there's a bleeding edge to this and Creative Fire is an example of that where, you know, the companies that are doing the most are the ones that are being quiet, keeping their heads down and making inroads. And so there's still, there's still time needed to really tell that story. I think that it's just, it's going to take leadership from indigenous people at the management level of companies to start singing those songs. And again, that's something that we're only building towards now. If you look at any of the statistics around large industry, Canadian-based large industry, it's a dismal number in terms of percentage of senior management in those organizations. So that's a step in the right direction, but it's taking time. So that voice will come. Um, but but clearly we have a long a long road ahead of us still, and I would encourage industry for for one to look at your talent pool and if you have you know talented indigenous skilled people give them management positions give them a voice give them a foghorn so to speak you know because this is what what's happening for the future in Canada. Yeah, that's really exciting. So I'm going to give you one last question, a really easy one. You've walked into a room and Prime Minister of Canada is sitting there, the Premier of Saskatchewan is sitting there, and John Manley, the uh, President of the Canadian uh, Council of Chief Executives, is sitting there. So you've got government at the provincial and federal level and industry Canada, and you've got maybe one minute to tell them what has to be done to make sure that Indigenous business succeeds more than ever. Use your minute wisely. What are you going to tell them? Change policy. Make it absolutely a requirement to address and include Indigenous business in in all things considered. Uh, Industry, when you look at procurement, do more than the nominal amount. We're we're out there and we're ready to do work. Uh, The Government of Canada allow us to access our own dollars, the money that's in trust, so that we can look at our future and provide good plans in a business capacity to build and gain wealth on our own change policy change policy change policy <laughs> <laughs> well you summarize that to a policy institute perfectly since that's what the mcdonald institute is all about um <laughs> listen uh, julianne this has been a wonderful conversation i hope it's the first of many <clears throat> that we have both through pod bless canada but also perhaps in person in the near future um i've been delighted here to be speaking with uh, julianne riston creative fire an indigenous owned company here in saskatoon uh, saskatchewan uh, you've been listening to uh, pod bless canada of the laurel laurie institute my name is ken coates a senior fellow at the institute thank you very much for listening and julianne what a wonderful conversation and congratulations on all of your accomplishments Thank you very much. Thank you so much.